0: Behold, a gateway to your own past if you wish. Is strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. It's hour three of a Tuesday morning, and if it is hour three of a Tuesday morning, it means Dave does history on Bill live Nice to have you along on 92.7 FM 1240 or 1350 AM and that iHeartRadio app, wherever you may be listening. And of course, if you are listening on the app, you can use the talk back feature to throw your thoughts our way. Just tap the microphone on the screen give us what you're thinking other than that we'll probably suspend calls for the first part of this hour as Dave gives us our weekly history lesson let's talk to Dave Bowman from Silverdale Washington this morning morning Dave how you doing pal I'm good Bill why am I not hearing you because I don't have you in program now I'm hearing you go right ahead I'm good Bill how are you today I am well uh to ask you the question I was asking everybody in the last hour
1: did you wake up in the America you thought you were in this morning Uh, no, I woke up in the America. I knew I lived.
0: Okay. Do you you see something drastically changed as a result of the Bargo raid?
1: I, uh, without spending a lot of time on it, look, this is not the first time that law enforcement has been weaponized and to draw on my previous comments, this is exactly what the anti-federalists predicted in the anti-federalist Papers. So I don't know why anybody's surprised.
0: Ah, very good. Very good. Well, you do have a history lesson for us today. Where are
1: you uh pointing the way back machine today, Dave? When the sun came up on the morning of August ninth, nineteen forty two, eighty years ago today, uh-huh, the United States Navy had suffered its worst blue water defeat in history. Worse even than Pearl Harbor. This was you know, Pearl Harbor was the army, the navy the Army Air Corps, the Marines, civilians. This was pure Navy. There was no, there weren't anybody else involved. It was was the United States Navy and the Royal Australian Navy that had been just absolutely almost obliterated in just two short hours overnight. And when that sun came up that morning, there were a lot of people worried about, What happens now? Just two days before August 7th, the Marines had landed on a little island called Guadalcanal. You probably heard of it. Mm -hmm. And they had gone ashore against almost no resistance at all. This had been a very easy landing. They had taken the airstrip that was the target of things. They had put up their defensive perimeter. Everything was going great. And that first day, that first full day, that August 7th, August 8th, things had been really quiet. But the Japanese were not just going to go away. They weren't just going to give you the island and say, here, have that. Their approach was, well, we need that. And so everyone assumed that there would be a Japanese counterattack of some kind, but nobody knew what kind it would be. A couple of things had happened. The uh, American Admiral uh, Frank Fletcher, in charge of the American aircraft carriers, got very cold feet on the afternoon of the 9th. And he pulled the American aircraft carriers away from Guadalcanal because he was worried about Japanese bombers from Rabool and other places nearby. In the meantime, six Allied cruisers, four United States cruisers and two Australian cruisers, were stationed off the beaches there to guard the, to guard the invasion fleet. And that was it. Six cruisers probably eight or nine destroyers. And these ships were sent out on the darkest of dark nights, August 8th, August 9th, and told to guard these beachheads from the Japanese fleet that might be coming. Nobody even knew for sure that it was coming. That's the amazing part. Mm -hmm. And when everything was said and done that morning, four of those cruisers were sunk. One of them was badly damaged. And a 1,000 Allied sailors were dead. Wow. It was the worst defeat in the history of the United States Navy. But it was just the first of a very, very long battle that would continue for the next six months. Wow. We get
0: into the details of that when we continue in just 30 seconds. Chateau Madeline, one of our sponsors here on Bill McLive, if you have a senior loved one, and it's time to consider that transition to a facility that has uh, senior living and memory care, you want to take a look at Chateau Madeline. You can do so online at suntreeseniorliving.com. Better yet, give them a call and take a tour because you're going to see things in the tour you won't find online. 321-701-8000. Get that tour scheduled. You will be as impressed as I was. With the facility, yes, it's a place where there's a real beautiful home and first-class nursing care. But there is also a staff there that is dedicated to the residents at Chateau Madeline and dedicated to bringing resort style senior living and memory care to that senior loved one in your family. So Chateau Madeline, a place well worth your consideration. Eric Hardoon, their executive director, committed to that environment, committed to your senior loved one who deserves a home like Chateau Madeline. Dave Bowman with Dave Does History. All right, Dave. So it's the morning of August 9th, and you you can see where uh, uh, the U.S. would be devastated at this point and just wondering what's going on. It
1: it, it was a sobering morning, Bill. I mean, y- y- the United States Navy had a lot of things going for it, one of which was radar. Radar was a brand new thing, but it didn't really work, and it worked fine. The problem was nobody knew how to use it. N- literally nobody had. E- even at Pearl Harbor, we'd had radar pick up the Japanese incoming strike, and nobody believed them. Nobody was like, well, there's no way that that could be. So even though you had a few ships equipped with radar and tactical equipment, nobody really knew how to use it. So that was the first problem we had. The Marines are are ashore on Guadalcanal. They are unloading. Admiral Turner has landed his force. They are unloading all their heavy equipment. This is going to take days to do. And so all the time that these these transports are vulnerable, the Navy has to, to guard them. But like I said, Fletcher got scared, got very cold feet, and withdrew the aircraft carriers because he was very concerned about Japanese land-based aircraft. And so he pulled them out, leaving just those six cruisers. Like I said, four American, two Australian. One of the Australian cruisers, by the way, is the flagship of the whole surface fleet there. And that Admiral, Crutchley he parks his cruiser off the beach at Guadalcanal and just anchors there and just stays there. So that really only leaves five cruisers to go out and actually guard the, uh, the entranceway there. I, I don't want to spend too much time, you know, on the details of the battle. If you, if you really want to get into who moved where, when, and how fast, and which way they turned and all those kinds of things, uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison's book, uh, The History of the United States Navy in World War II, really will get into that detail. Um, Frank's book on Guadalcanal will as well. But By the way,
0: with new links at BillMick.com for the Dave Bowman Show and for the bibliography on Dave Does History, those are for you at BillMick.com on the show page today.
1: What you need to understand is there were two groups. So you have the northern group and the southern group. And, and in the middle of this is a little round island called Savo Island, and it divides the passageway in half. So one group is guarding areas around the north of that island. The other group is guarding an area around the south of that island, and I realize now that my hand gestures are useless because this is radio. But (laughs) (laughs) anyway, the Japanese have sent a, a cruiser group, and they are headed through the southern entrance. The southern entrance is guarded by the HMAS Canberra and the USS Chicago. And this is where our vaunted technology fails us. In fact, one of the destroyers that has... Radar and is patrolling in a picket duty Gets within five miles Of the Japanese fleet and never sees Them doesn't even notice Them in fact the Japanese are Astonished that this Destroyer sails towards them and then stops and then Turns around and goes away
0: Did they not see it on the radar did they not believe The radar they had in front of it's unclear
1: At this point for that Um, But they clearly did not see them And so the Japanese said well okay Let's keep going a few Minutes later they spot the Canberra, HMS AS Canberra, which is the flagship of the Southern Fleet. And literally within five minutes, they just absolutely obliterate her before she can even get her guns powered up to turn around to fire. She is already just mangled. They didn't travel in a ready to fire posture. No, that's part of the problem, Bill, is, you know, this this whole war thing at this point, It wasn't new. I mean, it was eight, nine months old, but you still hadn't developed tactics for what you're going to do at night fighting. And and there's assumption that, you know, look, at night you can't really see, so how do you fight at night? Well, the Japanese are using spotlights, flares, and fantastic binoculars and specially trained lookouts, none of which we have developed. They have a thing called the long lance torpedo, which is just a... A vicious torpedo. It has a huge range. It's very fast, and it is devastating. When one hits one of those hits So mechanically, the the
0: Japanese were advanced
1: beyond us at this point. Far beyond where we were. One of these torpedoes hits the bow of the Chicago and blows the bow off, basically. And the captain Mm. of the Chicago, he, he can't figure out what's happening. He can't see anything. He doesn't know what's going on. He knows his bow is missing. And so he turns his ship the wrong way and basically stumbles out of the battle leaving the Canberra to herself, and she is just absolute. like I said, absolutely just riddled. Within five to ten minutes, she's a complete and total wreck. In fact, she's so badly damaged that the Japanese just leave her. They just sail on right on by her. But despite all the death and destruction, she manages to get off a few shots, and some of those shots actually hit the Japanese ships. They don't do a lot of damage. But they do enough damage that Admiral Makawa, the Japanese commander, says, hmm, I better make sure there's no other cruisers around here because if they are, they might mess up my plan. And so instead of turning right towards the beachhead where Admiral Turner's transports are, he turns left where he thinks the other cruisers are. And that may have saved the entire war effort right there.
0: Interesting. And we've got more of the story as Dave does history in this hour of Bill Mick live. Once we get through the uh, basics of the story, we'll let you weigh in as well at 1, 768 1240. Don't forget. iHeartRadio music festival coming up in September. And we've got a way for you to win your way out there. And we'll throw you a thousand dollars for the trip along the way. Details on the contest page at billmick.com. Just look in the on demand section there. Listen for the first keyword to fall just after nine o'clock this morning on WMMB. Hi, this is Justine bringing you late night talk for those that go to bed early. Listen to my podcast, What's Justine Thinking? Every Wednesday and Friday on Anchor and Spotify.
1: Dave Bowman joins Bill for
0: our weekly look at the past. We're kind of hoping to learn something new or at least have
1: some fun, you know? It's Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live.
0: Thank you, Victor Lyle. on the Hour, brought to you by the West Cocoa Pharmacy. Insider email, daily event. Hit your inbox about four o'clock. It'll remind you to go link back to BillMick.com and the latest that we've done each day. All three hours of the show, our call of the day. Anything else that we decide to publish goes there first, so you can check it out at BillMc.com. Sign up for that email, top of the page. Dave Bowman with Dave Does History from Silverdale, Washington. So, Dave, the Japanese attack at night, they've got better technology than we do, which has enabled them to have what looks like a pretty significant win. Then a Japanese admiral makes a decision to turn left at Albuquerque like you should have done when you were there. Um, I did. I turned yeah. left at Albuquerque. You never listen to Bugs Bunny. Come on, man. What's wrong with you? Um, Anyway, that's where we're at in this battle that looks like it's some of the biggest devastation for the U.S., at least for the Navy, ever.
1: Well, the thing and the thing to keep in mind is off the beaches of Guadalcanal is the entire supply system for the 1st Marine Division. And if we don't get those supplies unloaded or if those supplies are damaged or lost, the entire invasion is at risk. So. When Makawa, Admiral Makawa, the Japanese admiral, devastates Canberra, can't really figure out where Chicago went. Chicago's, when, when she had her bow blown off by the Longlands torpedo, she just sort of wanders off and nobody's, nobody knows where she's gone. In fact, because there's no radar, she's just sort of wandering around without a bow, taking random pot shots at anything she sees, trying to figure out what's going on. That's going to be a problem later on in the night, by the way. But in the meantime, he's concerned. He knows that there's other ships around, and he wants to get rid of them before he heads in and takes out the transports. But he also has a time limit. He's got to be in and out within four hours. If he's not, he's going to get caught by the aircraft carriers, which he thinks are still there. He doesn't know that they've withdrawn. If he knew that, he probably continues on, but he still thinks that they're there. So he turns left, heads BB north. He'd be in the Japanese admiral. Right. Yeah. He turns left, heads north, and after all of this, so the Canberra's on fire, the Chicago's damaged, all the shooting, all these spotlights, there are three US cruisers about seven to eight miles away. USS Astoria, the Vincennes, and the um I forgot the name of it, sorry. The the third one. You'll have to give me a minute to come up with a name. But anyway, they, they're they sitting there, and you would think at this point, Bill, that they've seen all this, and what happens? They're ready, right? They're like, ooh, let's go. Mm-hmm. No. As, as Bob Ballard will write, on all three ships, there was a tendency to explain away the warning signs. The airplanes were assumed to be friendly. The flares were, intended, were, were interpreted to be star shells. The, the firing of the guns was interpreted as thunder and lightning. And so they basically just sat there, didn't even go to battle stations. And by the time they realized their mistake, it was too late. The Japanese had split into two columns in the turn and were on both sides of them. So basically you have these three U.S. cruisers, Astoria, Vincennes, and Quincy, in the middle of two lines of Japanese cruisers, basically caught in a crossfire. Only one of the ships actually manages to get to battle stations before getting hit. Although it's kind of a a mess because the guy that decides they should be at battle stations is a second class petty officer who just hits the general alarm because he thinks they should go to battle stations. The gunnery officer starts shooting from the Astoria and the captain tells him to stop. We don't know what we're shooting at. There's Japanese ships over there. That's what we're shooting at. No, no, stop shooting. And he actually says, for God's sakes, give the order to fire. And he punctuates that with a few sailor words. Expletives. Yes. But by that, we'll go with that. But by that point, it's too late. All three ships are just riddled and much like the Canberra. It seems like they're already they're already on fire. In fact, there's a very famous photograph of all three of them burning, illuminated by Japanese spotlights and just being pummeled by these by these Japanese cruisers. And the the shocking unpreparedness of the whole thing is is what's going to cause Americans and particularly American admirals later on to look at this and go, what the heck were you guys thinking? You, not only were you in a combat zone but you had heard the earlier fire how can you possibly sit there and still be literally asleep as these japanese ships come up on you and that's that's part of the problem that we've got here is that all three of these ships are quickly disabled pounded into submission and left sinking mm. but but once something's going to happen because you know it's combat and it always always does
0: And we get to that momentarily as the West Cocoa Pharmacy makes this hour of Bill McLeod possible. Three things they bring you at the West Cocoa Pharmacy. Service, savings, and speed. Service like you're not going to get from an online pharmacy or maybe not from a corporate pharmacy. And certainly savings that you won't get from those entities because the cost plus pricing model at the West Cocoa Pharmacy lets them bring those savings to you. And with price reductions from their providers, Sedonafil, the generic for Viagra, penny a milligram, 20 milligrams, 20 cents, 50 milligrams, 50 cents. 100 milligrams, just a dollar. So now let's talk about the uh, the speed. Same day service of West Cocoa Pharmacy, not waiting for the internet pharmacy to deliver it to you or that type of thing. Go to West Cocoa Pharmacy and get it taken care of. And on the service side, they work with your doctor to bring you the most cost-effective treatment for whatever it is that ails you. Learn more at cocopharmacy.com or give the West Cocoa Pharmacy a call. It's 321-305-6909. We appreciate them bringing you this hour of Bill Mick Live. So Dave...
1: Something always happens. What's going on now? So even though the three cruisers are burning, sinking, one of them, Astoria, manages to get organized well enough that her fire, her return fire on the Japanese, is quickly becoming, as the Japanese admiral wrote, very accurate. And she manages to score three or four, possibly even five hits on some of the Japanese ships, including one that literally almost kills the Japanese Admiral, Admiral Makawa. Wipes out the bridge crew. He's left standing there basically alone. It takes out the chart tables. It takes out, you know, some of their communication stuff. And it is a, you know, to this point in the war, the Japanese have really not suffered really any significant losses. Yeah, they lost the Battle of the Coral Sea and Midway, but their surface ships have never really been tested. And so when this hit happens and takes out some 45 guys on their ship, they're stunned by this. They, they can't believe that this, this American cruiser that's sinking, that should be in, an, in a bygone age, would be striking her colors, is still fighting back and manages to score this really devastating hit, even though it really doesn't hurt the vessel that much. It hurts the crew, and it, it bothers the crew quite a bit. And so... As they leave a story behind the, the Japanese admiral Mikawa has to make a decision, and he 's deeply concerned about the damage to his ship he 's very concerned about the fact that this this American cruiser that should have been you know silenced was still fighting back and he 's also concerned about the American aircraft carriers, which he does not know are not there, and so he makes the fateful decision, remember the the American transports are still at Guadalcanal. All he's got to do is sail over there. He's, he's an hour away. All he's got to mm-hmm. do is sail over there and wipe them out. But he makes the decision instead to turn back and head back to his bases at Covey and Rabul. And the sacrifice, so based on the
0: actions of one disabled ship making some quality hits at the right time, he decides we better we better get out of here.
1: Gotta, we've had enough of this. Even though we're winning, we better get out of here. And in literally that moment, you watch the, the the one chance that they really had to win at Guadalcanal just completely evaporate.
0: That's well done. And and surprisingly so, but it's still devastating to the American forces and the Allied forces there. Dave's got more on this. And when we continue, we let you in on the conversation. It's three two one seven six eight twelve forty as we get our weekly history lesson from the Wayback Machine and Dave Bowman as Dave does history here on Bill Live. Again, don't forget, iHeartRadio Music Festival contesting starts in our next hour. Good luck. I'd like to see you win that big prize. Take me with you to Vegas or something like that. We're back in moments on WMMB. bill mix with WMMB radio in melbourne florida my show airs mornings from six to nine eastern every day we discuss news politics and social issues that impact us all tuesdays in our eight o'clock hour dave joins me for something we call dave does history where dave brings us events from our past that contain lessons for right now to listen live find WMMB on the iheart radio app
1: Bill now. three two one seven six eight twelve forty 1240. Common Sense on Common Radio.
0: The West Cocoa Pharmacy bringing you the hour as Dave Bowman joins us from Silverdale, Washington with Tuesday's edition of Dave Does History. Dave, uh, devastating battle for the U.S., and it's not over yet. Tell us where we are. It's
1: not only really not over yet, it's even as the Japanese are withdrawing because they're afraid of what might happen. There's still hell to be paid. The USS Chicago that I talked about just drifting around Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden is just taking pot shots at ships in the dark because it doesn't know who's who anymore. And one of those one of those pot shots is taken at the Astoria, which is still sinking and burning. This is this is the kind of confusion that's going on that night. But as the sun rises and people are realizing the the incredible amount of loss we've had. Three, four cruisers are sunk outright. One is heavily damaged. The Chicago, a thousand men, Bill, a thousand are dead. Mm. And that doesn't even include the wounded who are going to die. Some of these men are in life rafts or just floating and they won't be picked up for two more weeks. as They drift around Savo Island. It's, it's just a devastating loss. And it's. It's hard to imagine today. I I don't know how Americans today would deal with the idea of losing four ships and a thousand men in one night in in, in less than an hour and a half. I don't know how we would deal with that today. But in 1942. guess would be not well. No. But in 1942, it's just a bunch of lessons learned is what it is. Admiral Turner, who's the commander of the invasion, he has to make a decision because now he has one cruiser left to cover his invasion fleet. He has no aircraft carriers, no air cover to speak of, except for a few fighters on Guadalcanal, and he makes the decision, the gutsy decision, for which he doesn't get enough credit, to stay there and keep unloading, knowing full well that if the Japanese come back, we're going to lose even more men, more ships, more equipment, and possibly the invasion. But he decides to stay, and as the Japanese are running away from this fight, one last blow happens. The next day as they're sailing away, the, the submarine S-44, which is a very old, obsolete submarine, happens to get into the way of the Japanese cruisers and manages to sink one of them um, as, they're, as they're running away. And that, which is really, that's really the only loss the Japanese have in this fight. But the real error of the night is that Admiral Makawa withdrew. If he had gone on, who knows where the war goes? Who knows what happens? But... Call it fate, call it divine intervention, call it the USS Astoria still fighting on when she probably shouldn't have. Either way, all of those things contributed to the fact that the Japanese withdrew, and it was probably one of the biggest strategic blunders of the entire war, which tends to happen to the Japanese a lot. They get these tactical victories that are strategic defeats, like Pearl Harbor, Coral Sea, and now the first battle of Savo Island. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that this is the first of 6 months of these battles. And the United States is going to lose almost every one of them. In fact, there's going to be a almost even worse defeat uh, in November in the same place basically with the same tactics and the same problems. But ultimately, as you I'm not spoiling the story here, we're going to win the battle of Guadalcanal, but it's going to take some time to do it. There's a lot of lessons here. We learn, you know, night combat tactics aren't aren't easy. You have to practice them. You got to learn to use radar. And maybe that's the real technological miracle of the Second World War is how well we learned to to use radar, which up to that point was just sort of considered, you know, wizardry, but we figure it out. But I think for me, there's a lesson in all of this about the devastation of combat and how I think we've forgotten that. I really do. A thousand men in one night gone, just wiped out. And we haven't experienced anything like that since the second world war 80 years ago. What is that? Four generations for all practical Mm -hmm. purposes. We've completely forgotten about this. The USS Chicago, as I said, wandered off. Remember her? Yeah. Her captain is a guy by the name of Howard Bode and Howard Bode is, he's an odd duck in a way. But he, he was actually the commanding officer of the USS Oklahoma, the ship sunk at Pearl Harbor. So he's already had one ship sunk under him during this war. Now he's in command of the Chicago. And literally as the sun comes up that day, there are questions about his actions the night before. Why didn't you do this? Why, why did you not you know, fight? Why did you run away? And he will actually end up committing suicide about a year later because of the questions about his actions that night. And I think sometimes we forget that war is hell. And I think we forget sometimes that in the heat of the moment, people make decisions that make sense to them at the moment, but might not make sense overall. And it doesn't matter when the last shot falls in a fight, there are still going to be people who are casualties of that fight. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that we, particularly as we head into a world that's getting crazy, we might be well to learn. And hopefully we learn the lesson from 80 years ago today.
0: And we pick it up in 90 seconds with Dave Bowman, as Dave does history on Bill McLock. In addition to bringing you Operation Stormwatch at BillMc.com, O'Galley Electric is one of our sponsors here on the program. And with it being month three of hurricane season, something Dave Bowman dearly loves, You don't have to be stranded in the dark. A Generac home standby generator from O'Galley Electric that they have in stock right now can get you ready for the storm before it happens, and that's always wise. Do the preparation now so you deal with the events when they occur. doesn't take a hurricane to bring us power outages in Florida. We go through those fairly regularly, depending on where you are. And the ultimate home preparedness booklet available for you at eg-electric.com to help you be ready for the storm. We know these power outages are part of storm season. You can beat the storm with a Generac, home standby generator from O'Galley Electric. Give them a call at 321-425-3343 or see them online at eg-electric.com. Dave, I think you're right in that when's the last time the U.S. fought a war to win one as opposed to being engaged somewhere forever? And these lessons were hard learned, but yet we ended up winning that war and... Are we better prepared now?
1: We we want to think that we are. One of the things I was talking about the other day on one of the other shows I do called the Subvet, We were talking about the this fight at Guadalcanal, and my favorite ship in all of history, probably the ship that really drew me into naval history and into general history, the USS South Dakota, was commanded by a man who was technically a lawyer. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't technically. He was. He was a line officer, but his real job was lawyer. And how he found himself in command of a brand-new battleship is confusing. But he had a policy which was, I don't care if the brass is shiny or not, or if the deck has been hollystoned. If my men can't shoot straight, they're useless. And so he trained very much on shooting and, and combat and those kinds of things. And his ship, the South Dakota, was constantly criticized for not looking, you know, spiffy or four O as it were. But when the moment came his ship shot down 26 Japanese airplanes and basically saved the day at the battle of Santa Cruz. So, you know, there's this, there's this element of what are we training for these days? And I'm nervous about the fact that it's all well and good that we have these billion dollar warships, but if our crews don't know how to fight them, but they know which pronouns to use, yeah. I'm a little concerned about that. Um mm-hmm. You know, I watched that happen in my own time. I, I served under two captains, one of whom was a warrior, one of whom was, I, could, I wish we could have gone to war with him. I mean, he was that good. The other was more interested in appearances, and it showed. I mean, you could see the difference in, in the operation. We got more awards with the second guy, but I'm pretty sure we would have survived with the first guy. I'm not sure we would have survived with the second guy.
0: Interesting. I went through a command change in my Air National Guard unit. First guy, loyalty like you wouldn't believe, wasn't the stickler for appearances, but had a unit that was ready to do the job. Second guy, who later, he was a colonel, later became a general, was, uh, check all the boxes, make sure you check them right. And no, we can't do these things because it doesn't help us check boxes.
1: Right. And part of that is my perception of things. And I, and I, and I freely sure. admit that I, I acknowledge the fact that my second captain, I didn't care. For I have a very good friend who served with him on another submarine who thinks the, thinks the world of him. So, you know, a lot of it is perception. A lot of it is whatever. But the war fighting training we did on the first ship, we didn't with the first captain, we didn't do with the second captain. And knowing a little bit about history and a little bit about how things work, I, that concerns me because I, I see what's happening in my Navy today. I, You know, I'm not in the Navy obviously anymore, but but I watch the news like anybody else. I I watched the Navy uh, video thing where they they run a seven minute video explaining to me how how important pronouns are, and I think to myself, what are we doing here? Because are, are we going to be asleep like the like the three cruisers were that night? But we're going to look good. I mean, that seems to be the important considerations anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. And Dave, as as you. Look at the Navy as it existed in World War II. You mentioned that this one captain w- was a lawyer and that other captains were uh, out of other disciplines. How different was the Navy? How much career Navy was there and how many were there like what we would consider today Naval Reserves or guys who got pulled in from their civilian lives to be part of that? Navy? A lot and of it. Is that a
1: difference? Right. A lot of it was at the beginning of the war was Old Navy and very stoic, very, you know, the battleships are king. The aircraft carriers are are up and coming. I can tell you that in the submarine fleet, most of the commanders at the very beginning of the war were very by the book. You do this, you do this, you do this. And that didn't work. And they ended up getting replaced with younger reservists, people who didn't know that they weren't supposed to do things the way that they were, you know, doing them. And it proved to be far more effective. I, I think that happens in, in every conflict, you find a an evolution of leadership and an evolution of tactics that match each other. The problem that we're going to have, Bill, is that let's say we go to war with China in the South Pacific. It's not going to last long enough to develop new leaders and new tactics. And so we're going to be dependent on what we have now, and I'm not sure it's up to the job.
0: New technology would assume that China is reasonably on par with where we are?
1: Well, that's the assumption. I'm not sure. I am I'm, I'm somewhat unique in the sense that I don't necessarily buy that. I think a lot of it is paint and appearance, you know, okay. because that's what communist dictatorships do. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take it seriously. Hopefully we're ready for it. Hopefully we have a better, you know, I'm 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 not in the intelligence community, but I did notice the the intelligence community has finally decided to uh, to pay attention to China now, so. Woo.
0: As well they should. Yes. Dave, it's another great look at uh, Dave Does History on Bill McLeod. I appreciate it, man. You put a lot of work into this and bring us things in a way we haven't seen them before. So thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: We'll finish this story in November because that's when this this whole, this is the first fight of a whole bunch of fights that will end in November.
0: Very good. I look forward to that and we'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday, Dave, as Dave Does History with us each Tuesday on Bill McLeod. Thank you to the West Cocoa Pharmacy. They made the hour possible. Tomorrow on the show, wide open Wednesday. We'll see if anything more comes out of the Mar-a-Lago raid. And uh, we got a stack of stuff in the news we haven't had a chance to get to. But tomorrow is your day, so you get to take us where you like, right here on Bill Mick Live, I'll see you in the morning. Dave Bowman, I'll see you next Tuesday, pal. See you then.